Welcome to The Whole Steward, the holistic approach to wealth from a Christian worldview. I'm your host, Andrew Stanton, and I'm glad you've joined. Stewardship goes far beyond managing your finances. In fact, the nine forms of capital under your care are spiritual, physical, intellectual, experiential, social, cultural, material, financial, and time. Listen and learn from a veteran of life as we touch on all nine forms with my good friend Mel Murray today on The Whole Steward. This is episode number 48, and I'm so thankful you're listening. The forms of capital that I mentioned are all different good and precious gifts that God has given us to manage for a short time while we're on this earth. You may think of stewardship as financial management, but it goes far beyond that, as we've talked many times here on The Whole Steward. After all, it is the holistic approach to wealth from a Christian worldview. Today is no exception. We have a great guest. I hope that you're able to listen and identify the nine different forms of capital at different points through the interview, a interview that I've been wanting to do for a long time, and I'm so thankful that we were able to sit down in studio with my good friend Mel Murray. You and I have a lot to learn from the previous generations, and certainly Mel would fall into that category. We can learn a lot as we listen to a man who has not done everything right in his stewardship throughout the years, but has indeed learned a lot, and we have a lot to learn from him. So I hope you enjoy this interview and learn a little something from my good friend, Mel Murray, next on The Whole Steward. Our next guest grew up in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, entered the Marine Corps at 18 years of age, and served our country for 20 years exactly, deploying to both the Vietnam and Korean Wars, among many other things. Then he worked for the Oceanside School District and the state of California then as a driving instructor and examiner until he retired. He's married to the bride of his life, now 68 years, the father of four children, five grandchildren, all girls, and seven great-grandchildren. Welcome to The Whole Steward, Melvin Murray. Thank you. Well, we're glad to have you. It's been a pleasure. I've wanted to sit down with you for many times in the past. We've been friends for probably 22 years now. I've probably known you. Yeah. And you haven't aged one bit. <laughs> I mean, I, I've I've since grown up, had kids, and all these things. But uh, I don't know. Maybe you've added a few great grandchildren. Yeah, we've added two boys. Two boys. Two okay. Boys, yeah. And so you have seven great grandchildren. That's amazing. Well, the reason I've wanted to sit down with you is just to kind of get, I know we've talked as friends over many years and you have so many great stories and pieces of history that I think the next generations coming up, like my kids and even your grandchildren, great-grandchildren, want to hear and want to remember. And I think we have a lot to learn from what you've experienced. What I want to do is just travel back in time and explore the world as you saw it through the eyes of Mr. Murray. Um, When someone says Mr. Murray, I usually turn around and say, is my father behind me? (laughs) (laughs) Because most people just call me Mel or Melvin. Now that I have kids, I find myself referring to you as Mr. Murray. But I guess as a kid, we were, oh, we're going to go over to Mel's house. Right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Tell me about your childhood. Like, you know, where were you born? What year? I was born in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania in 1934, November 13th. Growing up, my grandparents had my birth date incorrectly. They said I was born in October. When we received my birth certificate, it said November 13th. At that point, we knew what my birthday was. It was really different growing up with my grandparents. 
rather than my parents. My mother died at a young age, as close as we can figure it, because my father doesn't talk very much. Uh, she was probably about 24 years old. My oldest brother is 18 months older than I am. And my oldest brother, me, then my sister, who's three years younger than me, and my youngest brother, who's six years younger than me. My youngest brother became the baby for my grandparents. And after they had raised their five children, now they're raising four grandchildren, oh, yeah. which was really different. My father was there, um, but he lived in an apartment separate from the house that we lived in. Because there were three boys and one girl, my sister at a point went to live with my aunt who had one girl so that the two girls could be together. When I left to go to the Marine Corps, that's when my sister moved back home with my father. Growing up, my, my father wanted us to at least experience music and paid for piano lessons. My oldest brother had violin lessons, but he didn't like it. So neither one of us liked piano lessons. So it didn't last very long. I was going to say, because I d had no idea you played the piano. I, I did. Okay. I did, as, as a child. Yeah. Okay. Went through elementary school, and I remember the principal's name. His name was Mr. Brooks. Junior high school, I remember some of my teacher's name, mainly my woodshop teacher, which I got straight A's. His name was Patterson. My electric teacher, his name was Green. What do you mean electric teacher? Like electronics? It wasn't electronics, no, that came later. It was electric. One of the things that, that he did was that he would get us in a circle and get a generator. And one person had to turn the handle on the generator, which produced electricity. Yeah. And we were all holding hands uh -huh. to see who would let go first. <laughs> that was very interesting. Yeah, that was in grade school? or That was junior high yeah. school. Then I went to high school. It was Ben Franklin High School in downtown Philadelphia. And, you know, one of the things that was interesting is that we walked to school. There were no buses. Mm. We walked to school. Rain, snow, sunshine, whatever. We walked to school. Uphill both ways? <laughs> in the snow. In the snow. <laughs> it, was, it was good. In high school, I did aeronautics and decided that maybe that wasn't the field that I wanted to or make a living in. What is aeronautics? Aeronautics is how airplanes are built, how airplanes run, and okay. everything about airplanes. Right, okay. It was interesting. So back then, high school was almost like a career path okay. choice time. Time, yeah. Right? Is, is that why you know they call it high school? Because a lot of people, like most people, wouldn't go to college. Maybe a lot of people didn't even finish high school. Most people didn't finish high school, including me. In fact, I dropped out of high school in the 12th grade. And one year before the end. One year before the right. end. A year later was when I went into Marine Corps and decided that I would take a GED test. Get your diploma. To get my diploma. Scored pretty high on the GED test. Scored so high, decided I was going to take the college test and did pretty good on that one also. So did you get some sort of a college degree then by scoring high on that test? No, or? I, I didn't get a degree. I got awarded two years of credit for college. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And then my Marine Corps career was very, very, very interesting. In boot camp, you, you had to select three areas that you would like to work in. And mine was aviation motor transport, and communications. Of the three, they gave me the last one, communications. And that's how I got to be in communications. Interesting. Even though you had studied the airplanes, the basically, airplanes. in high school, mm -hmm. you ended up in communications. Mm -hmm. in the, about your childhood, before we get to the Marine Corps, because I, mm -hmm. that's a super exciting time that I want to get into. So regarding your childhood, in, in Philadelphia, you walked to school, you lived with your grandparents. Did you go to the same school as your siblings? We all went to pretty much to the same school. Elementary school was Reynolds Elementary School, and the four of us followed each other in school. I have to back up a little. What was interesting is that in that time, you graduated 
from elementary school, you graduated from junior high school. Graduated from elementary school, we had to memorize Psalm 100. And that's what we had to recite as a class in the public school. In junior high school, what we had to memorize was 1 Corinthians 13. Wow. And that was really an eye-opener for me. Were you raised in a Christian home, as they say? Raised in a Christian home, but not all of the essentials, all, mm -hmm. all of the necessary things to become a Christian. My father always said we could do whatever we wanted to on Sunday after church. Okay. We had to go to church on Sunday. Now, did you find church interesting or boring, or how did you feel about it? I found it interesting, and I have to put it together that what I learned afterwards wasn't the same as what I learned or visualized in church, in Sunday school. I, I don't remember, and maybe they did, but I don't remember anyone saying that you had to accept Christ as your Savior. It was a Methodist church, and that's the way things were at the, you know, at the time. I'm sure that someone had to mention it. It just didn't stick in my head. It wasn't something that I felt that was necessary. So when did you become a true believer in your life, just for context? That gets into a progress that... Maybe it's a stage of life. Was it during your Marine Corps? It was, it was during my Marine Corps career. Okay. After Marion Carey, we moved a lot because of the Marine Corps. And that's jumping ahead yeah. from my childhood to my adulthood. So, so then let's stay on your childhood. In the public school, you were memorizing yes. Psalm 100, 1 Corinthians 13. So the schools have changed a lot now. Yes. Do you think for the better or worse? I think for the worse. Interesting. And how's that? Teachers are not allowed to, to teach religion or to, to talk about it or anything. Interesting. Know? It's, it's totally, totally different from my childhood. I often think that they're teaching religion, but just not the right one. Right. You know, they've got the uh, textbooks for, you know, say evolution and, you know, humanism and it's indoctrination anyways. Yes. Just not with not scripture. scripture. No. no Bible whatsoever. No, Bible. no prayer. And that's the, the other thing that was interesting in the public school is that we prayed all the time. The teachers prayed. You know, it's so different today, just so different. Um, I, I guess I, I remember my woodshop teacher because I'm sure he was a Christian. I would stake my life on it because of the things he said, the things that he did just impressed me so much. And the other thing was that I managed to get straight A's. <laughs> <laughs> so you were doing well in the class. I made a uh, complete miniature household furniture, and it was he was so impressed with it that they put it on display in the school. You were the standard. Huh? Yeah. So nowadays, it seems like we hear about it all the time. But I'm super curious, and this is just a genuine question. Growing up in the time that you did, did you feel at a disadvantage because of your skin color or your race? Mm -hmm. Did people treat you differently? And, and I'm talking like childhood. Do you remember Philadelphia? What, what was it like? Because nowadays there's so much noise and perception. I just wanted to hear, because I remember you made a comment to me one time. You said, you know, Andrew, if somebody's talking to me on the phone, they wouldn't be able to tell. Mm -hmm. And it's true, right? Mm -hmm. But I was wondering, what was that like? Was that a challenge for you? Or how did you work through that? That's a good question. I'm, I'm digging yeah. deep now. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good question. Growing up in, in the city of Philadelphia, mm. I never experienced racialism. Okay. I didn't experience it until I joined the Marine Corps. Interesting. There were 14 of us that went to Paris Island early. We were on the train and we went to Paris Island. When we got to the town that's right outside the, the Marine Corps base, it's called Yamasee. And the drill instructor got all of us off the train and it was myself and two other black Marines. Now, I shouldn't say Marines because we weren't Marines yet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Recruits. 
<laughs> but once a Marine, always a Marine. Right. Yeah. right. But you weren't a Marine yet. You weren't a Marine yet. But he called us over and said, there's no prejudice in the Marine Corps. However, the state doesn't allow you to eat in the restaurant. So the three of us had to go around to the back of the restaurant in the back and sit on orange crates to eat. And that was the first time that I had experienced racism. Wow. So all growing up through school, your teachers, your friends, your family, Mm. It, it didn't affect you. It didn't affect me at all. Did you grow up, as they say, colorblind? Like, you weren't conscious of that, and it, it, it wasn't an issue. It wasn't an issue at all. The street that we lived on, there were probably five white families, and the rest were all black. And we got along fine. That's good. So you had friends? Friends, yeah. yeah. There was no difference, you know, and, and, and that's how I grew up. And I didn't didn't realize that there was a difference until I joined the Marine Corps. And that was the first time. And that was the first time. Which later allowed me to know that the drill instructor wasn't as intelligent as he should have been. Because there was a difference in the Marine Corps. There was a black boot camp until 1948. And it was at, I can't remember the name of the place, but th there was a separate Marine Corps. Mm -hmm. There was a black Marine Corps and a white Marine Corps. Interesting. And the drill instructor didn't know that because he said there was no prejudice in the Marine Corps. Then how did you end up with him and being sent to well, eat on because Orange Crates? Everything changed in, okay, yeah, in, in 19, 1948. This was 53. Right, 53. Yeah. So it was five years after. Five years afterwards, yeah. Mm. So before we leave your childhood, what was one of the biggest, let's say, challenges growing up? I, I didn't realize. I think you probably told me that before, but your mom... My mom died of uh, gallstones, which today this seems like, what? Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And I remember probably the day that she died. She was in the hospital, and my father went to work every morning. And then after work, he would go to the hospital. He came home this one day with a brown bag. And in the bag was my mother's dress, mm. her dress and her shoes. So I knew something was wrong. Uh, not understanding what death was all about, but I knew that uh, there was something wrong, the fact that he brought her dress and her shoes home. Most people don't think that because I was so young that I didn't remember my mother, but I did. Um, I'll tell you some funny things that happened. Yeah. She would wash the clothes and dry them on the clothesline. My oldest brother and I had to fold them and take them upstairs and put them away. She would give him more clothes than she would give me. And I didn't like that. <laughs> so we would go upstairs, put the clothes away. And I was so bad that when we got to the top of the steps, I would push my brother down the steps. I was a terrible child. <laughs> I was a terrible child. Not an angel child, huh? <laughs> yeah. Just because your mom had given yeah, him give more, clothes. more clothes than she gave me. I was telling you earlier about my sister. Yeah. I, I remember her in the Christmas tree, and I told her, don't get behind the oh, Christmas right. tree because you'll get that angel hair all over you, and it will itch like crazy. And she wouldn't listen to me, and she got behind the Christmas tree and got that angel hair all over her. <laughs> How much younger was she than you? She was three years younger. Three years younger. Yeah. Yeah. Should have listened to older brother. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Growing up then, you know, getting through high school, being raised by your grandparents mostly, was your dad working a lot, or why was it that he lived... Well, well be, be, because of the size of the house, there wasn't enough room for the four children and a grown man. So he decided that what he would do is he would live in an apartment and he'd come to the house, you know, to, for his meals and, and to talk with so us. he was and, there all the time. He was time. there, yeah. yeah. When he wasn't working, he was there. If I remember right, you said your dad worked until he was... 91 years old. 91 years. 91 years old. He said that the, he wouldn't stop working because he would die. Interesting. He didn't know anything but work. Yeah. 
What was it that he did for work? I remember him working at the uh, the Navy Yard in Philadelphia. And then he went to work for a uh, contractor building something. I don't know. I'm not sure what, but uh, he, I know he's working for a contractor. Then he worked for, um, it was a new jewelry firm in downtown Philadelphia. The, the owner of the firm, his name was, his last name was Price. And he asked the... Uh, contractor if he could borrow my dad and the contractor said yeah you can borrow him but you have to give him back okay and mr. He's a good worker yes and mr price decided he wasn't going back and he kept my dad forever in fact he liked my dad so much that he put him in his will wow and in his will he said that that my dad could work as long as he wanted to and do whatever he wanted to do my dad became the general stock manager and uh, that's that's where he was until until he stopped working wow after mr price died the children wanted my dad to retire and my dad said no i don't want to retire I'm, and i'm not going to retire <laughs> and he knew <laughs> and he what knew. the will right he knew what the will said they they couldn't fire him they couldn't lay him off they couldn't do anything <laughs> And my dad worked until he was 91 years old. He died when he was 96. That's amazing. It is. It really is amazing. So mm -hmm. tell us about boot camp. Uh, it was different. Uh, because of what my grandfather had taught me, boot camp was not really hard for me. I thought it was fun. <laughs> I thought it was really fun. You know, um, Because there were 14 of us that got there early, they didn't know what to do with us except keep us in line. One of the things that, that I remember that the, there were a wood, it was a wooden floor okay. and they had these spaces between the planks. Okay. So they would give us a toothbrush and say, go clean the floor. And that's what yeah. we did. <laughs> and we did that until the other men got there so they could form a platoon. Okay. So it was really, really interesting. I thought that only happened in the movie. <laughs> no. You really cleaned the floors no, clean with, a, with, a, tooth, with a, tooth, a toothbrush. Okay. How many in a platoon? I would say probably 30 of us. Okay. And was that kind of a core group of guys that you went through with then? Mm -hmm. and, and there was no prejudice, you know. We were just all Marines. So that first experience then was just, was it an isolated case? Isolated, mm -hmm. yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. it, weighed, it weighed on my mind heavily that uh, the state would have those kind of, of, of laws that you couldn't eat in the same uh, establishment with white people. Mm. You know, it's, it, it seemed so ridiculous to me that... Uh, I remember wherever. Tell us, how long were you in the Marine Corps before you were deployed the first time? We graduated in October, and we were supposed to be in Korea by December. So it was only a couple of months. However, because there were so many of us, there were nine APAs of replacement men to go to Korea. And they just, someone decided that that's too many. So what they did was they said they split the ships in half. Half went to Korea, half went to Japan. And you can't split nine in half. Okay. <laughs> so I, I think there were five ships that went to Korea and four ships that went to Japan. I happened to be in one of the four ships that went to Japan first. Oh. So I spent 10 months in Japan okay. before going to Korea. Once we were in Korea, they decided, well, maybe we ought to send these guys home or send them back to the States. So Because you went from Japan straight to, to Korea. Straight to Korea. Wow. And from Korea back home. And how long was that deployment? That was uh, probably about four months. So my, my time in Korea was so-called after the war, but there were still things going on. Mm -hmm. And then back to the United States. I'm trying to remember, did you enlist into the Marines? Yes. Or, so was the draft? The draft was, was, still, was, was still there. It was still there, yeah, but, uh, but you enlisted. I enlisted. Why did you do that? I wanted to leave home. Interesting. 
I wasn't, uh, not that I wasn't happy, but I wasn't satisfied mm -hmm. with things that were going on. I just wanted to do something else. I want, I, I, I suppose I wanted to be different. So none of your siblings had anything to do with the military? I had, I had uncles that were in the Second World War, but uh, my brother didn't want anything to do with the service. And as it, certainly you were different. I was being different. the only Marine then in the family. My sister and I were pretty close mm -hmm. because we were the middle children. We did a lot of things to, together. Mm -hmm. uh, I really loved my sister. Well, I, I, I love my brothers too. It's different because she was the only girl. She was the only girl. Yeah. When you're deployed, were you staying in contact with your family? And I would write to my father. He, he would never answer, but I'd write to my father and tell him the things that were going on and write to my sister, and she would, she would answer my letters. She would answer. Yeah. So did you know whether your dad was getting the letters? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I knew, I knew he was getting them, but he wasn't, he wasn't a writing person. Yeah. You know, it was probably interesting to, it's a, to, to, to read it, yeah. but uh, that was the end of it. <laughs> that was it. You know, he didn't, uh, he didn't sit down and write. Were you involved in any fighting? You said it was a little bit after the Korea. war, but you still deployed to Korea. In, in all my deployments, I was always in an artillery outfit. Okay. Being in communications, you always knew what was going on because you received the messages first yeah. to give to, to, to the commanders. You know, so you were, you were the link between the upper echelon and the fighting organization. You know, and if you didn't get it right, if you didn't get it correct, bad things would happen. Most communicators don't have rifles. They have pistols. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. And it's called a TO weapon. And your TO weapon was a pistol instead of a rifle. Did you train with a rifle or just, you just carried well, the pistol? Every, everyone trained with, with, with a rifle. Yeah, okay. everyone trained with a rifle. However, your TO weapon wasn't necessarily the rifle. Some mm -hmm. of us had pistols. Okay. Yeah. What is this? Is this picture here that you brought? Is This one is my last overseas tour in Japan. I was the human relations NCO for, for Colonel Brown. Okay. And I had my own office and everything. So basically like the HR department for the Marines. Right. So you deployed, how many times did you deploy? Oh, geez. <laughs> um, for the two wars I deployed, um, when I was at Camp Lejeune, when it was our turn to deploy three months in the Caribbean. And I... I can't remember how many times we went to the Caribbean, but it was a lot. And when it was our turn, it was six months in the Mediterranean. I got to visit a lot of things. One of the Marines that we became real good friends, instead of going on liberty to do whatever they do on liberty, we would call ahead and book a tour. So we got to see some of the places that uh, most Marines never see. Mm. But it, it was really interesting. Um, most people will ask, well, what do you remember about Haiti? What I remember was that it was dirty. Interesting. It was not a clean place. However, going on tour, you got to see the better part of Haiti. And it was really interesting of Haiti. It was like you're up here and all the other things are down there and all the things down there are all dirty. What was your friend's name? His last name was Johnson. Mr. Johnson. Mr. Right? Johnson. Okay, and you stayed friends with him for years? For years, uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, where did, as I know her, Miss Carrie, uh, Mrs. Murray come into the picture? I know you said you were 21 mm -hmm. when you got married. Uh, how did you meet her? Where my grandparents lived, her mother lived across the street. I didn't know that she had a daughter. Her, her daughter was in South Carolina, and she came to Philadelphia to live with her mother, and that's when I met her. And so did you come back to visit home, and then and you met her, and how did it happen? When I would come home, I would spend a lot of time at my grandparents' house. So I would go over and pester her. Say, I need a glass of water. 
I, I need this. I need that. <laughs> you and Pastor Carrie. Yes. <laughs> As an excuse to see her. Excuse to see her. Yeah. How long yeah. did you know her before you got Three married? years. Three years. Three years before before we got married. But you were going off in the Marines, coming back, going off, coming back. You know. So it wasn't three full solid years together. It was kind of, were, would you write each other? Mm, not that much. You would just talk to her when you, when you came back to visit home. So you got married when you were 21. So you met her when you were 18. Okay. So how did the proposal go? What, what, what did that look like? <laughs> where, where was it? Where, where, did it, where did you... At her mother's it? house. At her mother's house. Yeah. Did you have a ring? No. <laughs> what did you say to her? I was too poor. <laughs> yeah, what did you say to her? I didn't say, will you marry me? And she said, and she oh, said I, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know, Is she really? I don't know, yeah, oh, I don't know. That sounds like her, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was after, you know, three years, you know, she said, you know, she finally said yes. So you had, you had to ask her repeatedly. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, persistence wins, huh? Yes. <laughs> so what'd she say, finally, okay, fine. Said, yeah, okay, we'll try. We'll try it. We'll try it. For 68 years. 68 years. Come March 16th, it'll be 69 years of wedded bliss. That's amazing. That's amazing. I wish she could have been here, you know, for this. She has some health issues that, you know, keep her at home mostly now. Keep her in the bed. She can't get out of the bed. Yeah. She's still growing strong, though. I, I talked to her yesterday, and I said, how you doing? She said, I'm doing okay. Could be better, but I said, well, I guess doing okay is better than not doing okay. Amazing. 68 years. Coming up on 69. Uh, you got married at age 21. You were in the Marines, so she was a trooper, because I know uh, I've had many friends with uh, Marine wives are a special breed. Yeah. to hold down the fort while you're gone. There's yeah. there's two forts, right? The one over in Japan and mm -hmm. Korea, and then there's yeah. another fort at home. They always said, well, her and the children, well, we have to find a way to fit you back in our life. Oh, but, yeah. Because I was gone yeah. for a year. I just wasn't there, and she had to do everything. How long before you started having kids? When did your first come along? She was married before, and the two oldest children I adopted. We had a boy and a girl after we married. The two of us have two children mm -hmm. and two adopted children. What's amazing to me, and I just love these stories, is that adoption is like what God does mm -hmm. for us. Mm -hmm. we're, we're not legitimate children right. of God. But he, he adopted us, adopted us right. into his family, mm -hmm. set his love upon us, right. and treats us as his mm -hmm. own. And here you have an example mm -hmm. of a man who adopted children mm -hmm. to treat them as his own. Yeah. And that's one of the greatest acts of, mm -hmm. of love and kindness yeah. that we can witness on this yeah. earth yeah. from a human yeah. standpoint. right? Mm -hmm. And that's why adoption is such a powerful if, if you look at the laws, the law says that an adopted child cannot be disinherited. Interesting. And where did they get that from? They got it from the Bible. Once you are adopted into the Lord's family, mm -hmm. you can't be disinherited. And it's exactly the same with children. Children cannot be disinherited. You can do whatever you want to with children that are from your union. You can say, no, I don't, I don't, I'm not going to leave you anything. I'm not going to give you anything. The law can't change that. That's the way it is. Your later years in the Marine Corps, what was that like? You, you were working in the HR department, but you also were a drill instructor, right? For a short time. In fact, that, that part I kind of leave out a lot. Interesting. Why? Because it was too short? Yeah, I, I, I guess that's what it is. It was too short. You know, okay. I, the other part of my Marine Corps career was just, for me, unbelievable. Uh, I went to so many different organizations. I was in Korea. I was in artillery. 
when we came back from Korea, I was in artillery. Then I went to Marine Barracks in Lakehurst, New Jersey. Was there for 18 months. Mm. Left there and went to Camp Lejeune. And there I was in an uh, infantry organization. Stayed there for, I don't know how many years. But the next set of orders that I received, I went aboard ship. The Marine Corps at that point was, was doing the, what they call vertical envelopment with helicopters. Mm. And they took three aircraft carriers and converted them to helicopter ships, LPHs. And the agreement was between the Marine Corps and, and the Navy was that for every MOS that the Marine Corps has, that the Navy has, the Marine Corps would supply troops aboard ship. So we became ship's company. And communications is the same everywhere. There's no difference. That's when I became a cryptographer. I worked in the crypto center. For people to understand the Morse code, even though I was a radio telegraph operator, they had enough men there. And they said, well, who wants to go to the crypto center? <laughs> okay. And that, that was really interesting. We would see messages that would tell the captain where he's going, what he's going to do, and everything. And you knew everything that was going on. You know, wow. it, it was really good. So you knew which way the ship was going to turn before anybody yes, else before on the anybody ship. Anybody else did. Before the captain did. And you'd receive the message, and at the very beginning, it would say, for the captain's eyes only. Wow. Except your eyes had to see it, too. Get it first. So you, oh, okay. yeah. you know, and, and we had to go up to the, well, get the message, go up to the bridge and give it to the captain. So I, I know I've heard you talk about your days as a drill instructor, but they were short. How, how short were they? Maybe six months. How did you gain the respect of the recruits? With recruits, it's different. But with the men that I worked with, you had to gain gain their respect. I would tell them, I can make you work for me. It would be better for you if you worked with me. I only had one man, one Marine that ever challenged me. And for his challenge, he wound up in the break. The rest of them knew, don't mess with me. Because <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're, you're not the tallest guy in the room. No. Uh, how tall... Were you? I'm 5'3". 5'3". So these Marines, some of them must have been towering over Six foot, over six foot, yeah. So you're looking up a foot. Yeah. How did you gain that respect? Treat them like men. Everything is good as long as you do what you're supposed to. As a young sergeant, I wanted to go on a drill field. But the Marine Corps kept saying that because I had four children, it wasn't a place for me. Now... I'm near the end of my career. I'm a gunnery sergeant, and they want me to go to the drill field. So they wanted you to, so it wasn't a request. Yeah, in fact, my, my last overseas tour, when I was in Japan, the orders that I received was to uh, Paris Island, South Carolina. Okay. I went to Paris Island, went through the, um, the interview sessions and all of that, and I, 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 I told the major that was there, I said, you know, it would make more sense if you would send me to San Diego. I said, because my family is in military housing at Camp Pendleton. I said, if I stay here, you're going to have to move my family here. And that cost a lot of money. I said, if you send me to San Diego, you know, things can stay the same. And he thought for a minute and he said, yeah, you know, that. That really makes sense. We'll send you to San Diego. <laughs> so that's how I wound up at San Diego. And then after San Diego, I came, went back to, to uh, Pendleton. In 1965, the war in Vietnam was going pretty, pretty heavy. And I was at Camp Lejeune then. They started what's called Schools Battalion at Camp Pendleton, teaching every phase of organizations in the Marine Corps. So that's when they transferred me to, to Pendleton. That was in 1965 and stayed there until I went to Korea in 66, 66, 67. 
teaching at, at, at schools battalion of teaching communications. Yeah. I, I, one of the things that I realized about talking is when you hear yourself after it's on tape. Interesting. Black people have a way of talking that only black people understand. One of the other teachers in junior high school that I remember, Mr. Shoup, was an English teacher. And one of the things that he said is, you are not going to bring that slanguage in my classroom. So <laughs> he, he, he really enticed us and made us talk correctly. Interesting. Yeah. Slanguage. Slanguage. Yeah, bring that slanguage in my classroom. And did you have some of that? Did you have to learn? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then you went into communications. So you had to learn communications really well. When did you get out of the Marine Corps? August 6, 1973. And how long was that from the point you got into? 20 years. Exactly 20 years to the day. And, you know, they kept saying, well, you have to go to the end of the month. No, I don't. My enlistment is terminated on the 6th of, 6th of August, 1973. And that's when I want to retire. They said, oh, okay. <laughs> okay. When you got out, did you think about like, hey, what career path do I want to go in? Or did you think, oh, I want to do the same thing that I was doing in the military? <laughs> there's, there's, there's humor in that. When I retired, I decided that I wanted to drive trucks. Not trucks, I wanted to drive semis. So the first job I took was the Army-Navy Academy in Carlsbad. They had a school bus. That's where I went to work. And I decided that I was working for... $2.11 an hour or something like that. <laughs> there, there was a lot of benefits at, at, the, uh, at the academy, but it, it, it just didn't fit right. But anyway, I decided that I wanted to drive semis. So I went to truck driving school in Indiana because California didn't have one then. And that's, that's when I learned to drive semis. My wife decided, since you have spent 20 years in the Marine Corps, and you have been away from your family on occasions, if you want to drive semis and go all over the world, <laughs> you just stay gone. <laughs> Don't come back. Don't Joe. come back. Wow. What a pivotal moment in your marriage, huh? Yeah. So before I left to go to the school, I applied at the school district drive school bus. And while I was gone, they called me. So they said, and they, and they told him I was at truck driving school in uh, Indiana. And they said, okay, we'll save the testing until he comes back. So when I came back, I went and took the test, and that's why I wanted to yeah, work. So then you stayed local with your family yeah. in Oceanside. I know, I've heard her tell that story. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty amazing, you know, the Lord uses different things to mm -hmm. sort of... Uh, change our course or our path and uh... we we think we know what we want to do but he knows best yeah. he knows best yeah. so you drove school bus school bus or oceanside oceanside i i actually only drove for two years oh and the rest of the time i was either the trainer or the dispatcher okay yeah. he's too good he needs to be teaching others how to do this, huh? <laughs> yeah. and then the opportunity became at the highway patrol, you know, to uh, to test school bus drivers. And the the um, transportation director at that time, he said, you know, you can stay here and apply for my job when I retire, or you can go and take the test for this job. So that's what I did. That was another interesting part of my life. I found out that there were 215 people that applied for the job. Of the 215, they decided on, I think it was 50 people. And of the 50 people, there were only nine positions. I got a letter that said that if I was interested, I could come and be interviewed at Westminster. That's in Orange County. Carrie was working at that time. She was working at Burroughs Corporation. I left the letter there so she could read it and said, okay, check this out. I'm going for an interview in Westminster. So I went up and interviewed with them. And the next day I got a call and said, the job is yours if you want it. And so what specifically was this job doing? 
testing school bus drivers for a certificate to drive a school bus. The Highway Patrol is a law enforcement agency for school buses. Okay. They do everything that happens with school buses. When, when there's an accident with a school bus and there's children aboard, the Highway Patrol has to inspect it. So you commuted then uh, mm -hmm. to Westminster? To Westminster. Every day. Every day. How long was that drive? 62 miles. 62 miles one way? One way. Every day. And you would leave at what time in the morning? At 4 o'clock. Well, I'd get up at 4 o'clock and I had to leave the house by 5. Leave the house by 5. The, the, the first day, well, the first week, that I went to work, I told them, I, I can't do this. I said, it is too much. I said, well, it's your job. You work what hours you want to. And I said, oh, okay. <laughs> so instead of going from 8 to 5, the first time I changed it, I was going at 7. By the time I retired, I was going to work at 5.30. 5.30 a.m. Yeah. So you started moving it gradually yeah, earlier and earlier. earlier. Yeah. Because you can't do any testing until after nine o'clock because the school buses, you know, they're out picking up the children and taking them okay. to school and they're all back to the yard by nine o'clock. So I, uh, I did all of my paperwork and everything else in the early hours. So you would commute early in the morning. Mm -hmm. I think you might've told me something about a superpower that you had. <laughs> and driving? While driving. Well, so go, mind you, you're a driving <laughs> instructor, right? Yes. And I would go to sleep. <laughs> How did you do it? I don't know. I don't know. It, it, I, I, I would leave the office, and, and the next thing I knew, I was at home. You were there. <laughs> How I got there, I don't know. So see, everybody, you're all <laughs> excited about these self-driving cars and Teslas and everything. <laughs> No need for that. As long as I kept them between the botch dots, it was fine. <laughs> so would you feel the dots and then oh, get yeah. back into yeah. the center? Yeah, of the, you, like, yeah you, the, the car would hit those botch dots and wake you right up. <laughs> so your nap would get interrupted. Then. Oh, yes. Okay. Is traffic worse now than it used to be? Well, that's why I said I couldn't do the job because the, the traffic was just too much. And then... After changing the hours, it was much better, except on Friday. Mm, it didn't yeah. matter what time. Yeah. <laughs> it was bad coming home. Yeah. You know, all of those people that live up north wanted to come south. You know, and it, traffic was just terrible. Mm. Oh. So uh, after all your years in the Marine Corps, and then for Oceanside, I guess, Unified School District, and then the Highway Patrol, I personally don't like the term retired, but you were able to leave that work mm -hmm. aside. I remember being a kid in the church, mm -hmm. you know, you constantly serving the church and everything. Uh, the way I like to put it, and I'd like to get your thoughts on this, I personally never want to retire. I just want to diversify my income so that I can work on the things that I want to work on. Right. And you reached that point where you were able to do that fairly early on. Mm -hmm. And I've always had a lot of respect for that because you work on the things that you want to work on right. now. And so maybe I could guess the, the military and the highway patrol in particular have taken care of you in, in that regard. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but how did you achieve that? Other, other than the Lord doing it, I had these plans in my head that at age 59, I could retire. And why I picked 59 is beyond me. But I knew that I could draw Social Security at 65. And I wanted to do something else before I start drawing Social Security. And that's when I went to work for the church in Carlsbad as the Minister of Education and Administration. That was interesting because I did everything at the church to keep it running. It wasn't until the pastor that we had that we didn't see eye to eye. Um, he wanted to do things that just didn't make sense to me. And I decided that maybe that's not what the Lord wants me to be. And that's when we left the church in, in Carlsbad. 
when Carrie and I accepted Christ, when we were at Camp Lejeune, we went to church in Jacksonville. It was an all-black church, and we didn't like it. Why not? I don't know. It just was not what we thought the church should be, you know, and, and they just did things that just didn't make sense to us. So we started going to church on base, and there were two chaplains, and the one chaplain, his last name was Alexander. He would come to our house so we would have Bible study, and that's when I learned a lot of Scripture, and Carrie could memorize Scripture, unbelievable. After that, until 1965, when I got transferred to Camp Pendleton again. At, at that point in my life, for some reason, I was experiencing migraines. Uh -huh. Yeah, I was experiencing a lot of migraines. And I'd have to go in the room and close the door and turn the lights off and everything. Yeah. It was really bad. And the chaplain decided that Carrie was telling him about what was going on. And he took me out to the Naval Hospital and said, you need to do something. And after examining me, they gave me this medication. I remember the name of it. It was Cathagot. That was okay. the name of the medication. Okay. <laughs> and that took away the pain, took away the headaches. Interesting. So no more migraines. More migraines. Yeah. So there's a there's a mix of uh, trusting the Lord for healing mm -hmm. as well as uh, addressing things as best we can. And sending someone who really cared about what was going on in my life. I, I remember him. <laughs> he was a dear brother. Yeah. If you could leave the next generation. And, and I know there's a few generations between where you're at, even where I'm at, versus my children. What would you want them to know? Well, I think the first thing they need to know is that the Lord is in charge. The Lord will direct you in the way that he wants you to go, the way that's the best way to go, if you trust him. Um, things are not always going to be the way you think they should be because we are just dumb human beings <laughs> and we don't know we really don't know i would tell my children in growing up is that if you don't put your trust in the lord you're headed somewhere else and he's the answer i don't know what all goes on in the church but i really know what needs to go on you need to be teaching what the bible says i was kind of astounded Julius came over one day and he was kneeling down and talking to me and I had my iPad and he was amazed that I could use the iPad and it had all of the Bible in it. I said, because of where I am physically, it's hard for me to hold the Bible, the book. I said, but I can put that little iPad right in front of me and hold it. It says the same things. Yeah. It has the exact same words. That's where my trust is. There's there's some things going on in my family that isn't good. My daughter always says, well, you go to church every Sunday. I said, yeah. I said, we used to go to church every Sunday. Yeah. My prayer every day is, is for my children to give their life to the Lord. To know him better. To know him better. You, uh, in so many words, articulated Proverbs three, five, and six, right? Mm -hmm. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Right, right. Lean not on your own understanding, yeah. but in all your ways acknowledge mm -hmm. him and he will direct your paths. Mm -hmm. You probably can't say that every step of the way you were trusting him. No. Right? Yeah. But he still directed your yeah. paths. Right. And certainly his grace mm -hmm. and his mercy is evident in your life mm -hmm. all the way through. Of the four children, there's only one that I know is trusting the Lord. And that's my youngest daughter. That is the the most important thing. You know, we were talking earlier about the whole steward and the, mm -hmm. the nine forms of capital that we have under our stewardship. And certainly you can see as you look either back at your life, no matter what stage you're at, you know, mm -hmm. whether you're, um, you know, in grade school or, high school or in your 20s, 30s, you know, what generation, the truths of God wanting our heart and our life 
in faithful stewardship mm -hmm. of all the, the things that he's given us. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean it's easy and it doesn't mean you always do it right. You can look back and be thankful for seeing his hand of providence, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And it's pretty amazing to me just to think, even specifically in your marriage, I know you well and just your devotion mm -hmm. to Carrie mm -hmm. after 68 years still working hard and, and caring for her. It's such a blessing and an encouragement. Mm -hmm. Marriages like that are, I think, becoming more and more rare. Yeah. And it's, you know, something to look up to. Mm -hmm. I think. Took my daughter three times getting married to find the right person. And I kept telling her, that's not the right person. And of course, oh, Dad, you just don't know, you know. You know. <laughs> yeah, I... I'm in love. Yeah, right. <laughs> so. Don't you think there's an element of uh, choosing to love, too? I, I think a lot of times people say, well, I fell in love. And I say, well, if you fell in love, you could fall out, out, of love. out of love. But if you mm -hmm. chose to love, mm -hmm. you can continue to choose to love, right? Mm -hmm. Is that necessary for 68 years? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. How necessary. Yeah, how necessary. Yeah. How are things now? Tough. Hmm. Tough. Um, that's probably one of the reasons the Lord says that you choose who I send. And in the vows that say in sickness hmm. or in death, you have to be together. Sometimes because of her sickness, her mind goes other places. Mm -hmm. Sometimes she gets so angry with me about nothing. And they, she throws things at me. Dodge it. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but in those times, you have to say to yourself, it's not her. That's what's going on in her mind. That's the things that the devil is putting in her mind. Mm. You know? So in sickness and in death, you're together forever. Sickness and in health, and in health. until death until do death. us part. Yeah. Once you understand that, and you know that as time goes by, unless the Lord comes, mm -hmm. it's going to happen. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's going to happen. Your marriage is a huge testimony, and I think that's very powerful. You're bringing up the difficulty mm -hmm. and the love. Yeah. You think about, we'll have been married for 11 years mm -hmm. uh, on December 1st, but you have moments where you think, oh, I'm really self-sacrificing now, maybe, you know, in your life. Oh, this, this is true love. If it isn't, you know, what is? Mm -hmm. But after 68 years, things don't get easier physically. No. You know, no. your, your body breaks down. Things get tougher just on a physical basis. Mm -hmm. But then emotional and spiritual are tied together in that, right? Because now you're physically having a problem mm -hmm. and mentally it's making it challenging. challenging very challenging so all of these things i guess are intertwined to live out what god mm -hmm. calls us to do even as stewardship i mean you're a steward of your marriage you're a steward of your finances you're a steward mm -hmm. of the relationships with your children and your grandchildren and all these things mm -hmm. and you have to work on it i know uh we, we didn't touch on it but um i knew you when you used to walk mm-hmm you're in a chair now, a nice one. My son saw it, my 10-year-old son. He goes, I want one of those. <laughs> you're like, well, I'll gladly yeah. give it to you if I had your legs, right? Uh, That's right. But, but both uh, you and Carrie wheel around in these really nice mm -hmm. chairs. But I know a little bit of the backstory, but why don't you just explain to us, how, how did you end up here without the use of your legs? That I don't know. Other, other than Carrie was going to... Um, a neurologist, and our youngest son asked her, why is dad limping? I didn't know I was limping. So I went to, to her neurologist, and he did examinations and, and all of that. He sent us to Tri-City Hospital to have a test done, and it came back positive for both of us, which means that both of us have whatever it is. Then they told us the name of it, and it's called tropical spastic paralysis that affects the nervous system 
And he said that the only place you could have gotten it was either in the Caribbean or Okinawa. I said, well, I spent a lot of time in the Caribbean. I didn't spend that much time in Okinawa. And, and I said, the only time I was in the Caribbean was when I was in the Marine Corps. So I asked him if he would write a letter to the, uh, to the VA explaining what the illness was. And he said, yeah. So he wrote the letter and we sent it to the VA. They contacted me and said that they know what it is and I have to have tests done and all of this stuff. But it's an airborne virus and it's a very slow progressing virus. Evidently, the, the people that live there are immune to it. It doesn't bother them. Interesting. Yeah. So it bothered both of us. Well, they ask about our children, but children were born before I ever went to, to the Caribbean, so it doesn't affect them. Because it's so progressing, it, it affected me more than it did her, but she was already diagnosed with MS in the 70s. It went into remission in the 80s. and then they said, no, she doesn't have MS. She has the same virus you have. See, I caught the virus and gave it to her. And that's, that's why she gets mad at me sometimes, because she thinks I'm, because I gave it to her. <laughs> she won't let you forget it, huh? Yeah. Well, my son said I was limping, but I started walking, and I was using a cane. And then after the cane, I was using a walker. Then after the walker... I'm in a wheelchair. I met you when you had the cane. You had the cane? Yeah. yeah. And uh, it was amazing. The difficulty that it looked like you had to walk. Mm -hmm. uh, but you said, oh, I don't feel I it. I don't feel it. I don't yeah. feel it. Mm -hmm. I just, your legs just get weak. Yeah. Uh, but you had the doctor write the letter to the VA, basically, mm -hmm. and they knew about it, yeah. and they have taken care of you all the way right. because you picked it up while being in the Marines. Mm -hmm. Yeah, what was interesting with the letter was that the letter said because of the virus, they're giving me 70% disability. Now, at that point, I had never seen a VA doctor, never talked to any medical people in the VA, but they've given me 70% disability. So not only do they know about it, they know what's going to happen. Yeah. So they started giving it to you right away. Basically. Oh, yeah. Gave me 70% disability right away. And then later, they gave me 70% disability and 100% non-employable. That means I can't go to work for anybody. Interesting. <laughs> which, which was, ah, oh, jeez. Don't understand. Don't understand what's going on. Well, you still work. I mean, even even today, this uh, this interview has been probably not the easiest, but I really appreciate you, you know, coming out. And I think it's good for for us to hear about the challenges, mm -hmm. about the victories, about the acknowledgement of God's providence oh, through yeah. all of that. Mm -hmm. And I really appreciate your friendship uh, the years yeah. that we've known each other mm -hmm. thank you very much for i appreciate sharing it, yeah. it yeah it was good it was good for me good wow what an awesome adventure mr mel murray's life a testimony to god's grace Certainly not having done everything perfectly. In fact, we are all sinners in need of a Savior, as he mentioned. And we need to learn from those who have gone before us. So if you learned something today, a little tidbit of wisdom or something that caught your attention, please let me know. Letters at thewholesteward.com. You can email me there or leave a comment on whatever platform that you listen on. I see and read them all and will respond to you. I appreciate your feedback, honest feedback. If you see something I can be doing better, please tell me that as well. I need to hear it. Also, if you leave a review for the show, that would greatly help get the word out for the whole steward. So many good themes today. All nine forms of capital under our care for a short time. And you can see the evidence of the realization that we are just stewards. 
for a short time. The things that we have all around us here will pass away. They will be gone. We are but a mist. We are a vapor that vanishes. We are a flower that fades in the morning and is gone in the evening. And yet, all through your life, you step through these points of stewardship that bring glory to God. Either they do or they don't bring glory to God. His grace is sufficient in our weakness, and the thoughts and actions that we have, our time, talent, and possessions are all His, and we give Him glory for all of it. Also, sometimes good stewardship is not easy. In fact, often the most difficult things are the most worth it. That's something I took away as well. That's it for today. Thanks for listening. And now that you know more, go out and grow more. All content on The Whole Steward is for informational purposes only and must not be considered personal, professional, tax, or legal advice. Please consult an appropriate professional for individualized advice. Though we do our best to bring you reliable information, we make no guarantee on its accuracy. So you must rely on your own due diligence to draw your own conclusions. The views expressed by guests on the show are their own and may not represent that of the host. Please visit our website for complete terms and conditions. Thanks for joining us today for the holistic approach to wealth from a Christian worldview. This show is brought to you by thewholesteward.com.